0: Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. My name is Keaton Tucker and I want to thank you for listening. Today we are going to be talking about the song Fast Car, one of my greatest fears, perpetual male adolescence and what we can do about it. Then we're going to get into our comment section where I respond to comments left on YouTube and we'll be finishing with today's gospel from Matthew chapter 18. If you are new to the podcast or you just haven't hit that subscribe button, go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind, leave a five-star review. That really helps us out. And if you want to get into heaven, be sure to leave a comment. It's guaranteed entrance into heaven if you leave a comment either on iTunes or on on Substack or on YouTube or wherever you listen to this podcast. Guaranteed entrance into heaven. If you do leave a comment on YouTube, there's a chance that you will be featured in the comment section of the podcast. Some people leave hilarious comments we all need to see, and some people leave hilarious compliment, comments that need to be refuted and laughed at. So if you want to be a part of that, leave a comment on YouTube. Like I said in the introduction, we are talking about the song Fast Car today, written originally by a woman named Tracy Chapman in 1988. It was on her debut album, and which is amazing because it became a, number, a top song of all time. It was named number 71 of top 500 songs of all time by Tracy Chapman, and then Luke Combs recently picked it up. And remade the song and it is this beautiful song. I'm sure you've heard it. Everybody's heard it. It was one of the most popular songs in America for a while. I think it was on the top top three in America. And I remember the first time I heard this song, Fast Car by Luke Combs. We listened to the Luke Combs version. Love Luke Combs. And we were me and my family were driving to Cape Cod for a day at the beach with, you know, some family. And my wife leans over and she goes, Have you heard the song Fast Car? And I was like, No, no, I haven't, and she plays the song Fast Car, and I'm listening to it, it's very catchy, it's very rhythmic, great lyrics, and there was something about the song, I was like, okay, you gotta play it again. And, okay, you got to play it again. And we ended up listening to the song over and over and over again, pretty much the entire way to Cape Cod. I think it was probably between seven and ten times that I had my wife replay this song over and over. And you you might be listening. You're like, wow, you would be really annoying to travel with. I might be. But there was something about the song, and it was around the seventh time of listening to the song and playing the images of the lyrics in my head. I could almost picture it. And I actually pictured all of this happening in a little town called Alamogordo, New Mexico. It was a town that my wife lived in for a year while we were dating. And I have, and it had all these convenience stores. And I imagined that being the scene where Fast Car happened. And about the seventh time that I was listening to it, I cried. And I was very, so touched by this song because this is a song about a woman who hoped... Something would happen from the man that she fell in love with And nothing happened And it just repeats the cycle of what she grew up with You know, this woman in this song She's got some hopes Her mom left her dad because her dad couldn't stop drinking And she had to take care of her dad And And then she's like asking her boyfriend with the fast car That makes her feel something Makes her feel alive Makes it feel like she could be somebody She's like, hey, can we just get out of this town? Can we go somewhere different and start somewhere? And she's like, I've got a plan. You know, I've been working. You have not been working. I know you haven't been working, but I've been working. I've been saving some money. We can take your car, my money, and we can get out of here and start a new life. I do got to take care of my dad, but eventually we can get out of here. And then they get out of there and they get into the city and... He like, you you still haven't found work, but I'm working as a grocery store girl, and I know that I'm going to get promoted, and I know you're going to find work eventually. You've still got your fast car. You're going to find work eventually, and we're going to get out of this shelter, but I still got hope. I still got hope because I remember what you made me feel that time in your fast car, and then you fast forward just a little bit more, and now she's got a job that pays all our bills, and he doesn't. He's still staying out late at the bar. He sees more of his friends than you do of your kids. And she's just like, you know, take your fast car and keep on driving. Just get out of here. They're like it, I could see all of this happening as I listened to this song. She, This woman, she's a hero. I mean, she took on all the responsibility she needed to for her kids and then for her bum husband who had made her feel a certain way but then never delivered on what a man is supposed to deliver on he made her feel alive which a lot of men especially when they're young are good at making women feel alive but then they never take on the responsibility to sustain that feeling she never gave up and he never grew up she kept on hoping and now there's kids without a father because he never took on responsibility that's the that is what this song is about and you're like i know i listened to it but i want you like if you've ever played the images over in your head it's a very, very powerful song, and part of the reason it's so powerful is because it's the story of a lot of women and children today, which we're going to look at some articles that kind of show what has happened to manhood in the United States of America. I mean, I said in the introduction, one of my greatest fears come, is played out in this song because one of my greatest fears is failing to rise to the level of responsibility required of me. Like, it's one of my greatest fears. I think about it all the time, that I will not rise to the level of responsibility required of me for the sake of my wife, of my family, of my posterity, of my children, that I'll fail to bring in enough income, that I'll fail to do what a man is supposed to do to bring up his child in the way that they should go, that I won't be as present as I need to be present, that I'll fail to discipline where I need to discipline, that I will look out for my own interests more than I look out for the interests of my family. I think about these things all the time. Because I don't want to do that. And that, that is the story of manhood in America. Perpetual adolescence is the norm today. It's a refusal to grow up. It's a refuel, refusal to take responsibility. And I've said on this podcast, the working definition of manhood, not manliness, not masculinity, manhood, the art of being a man, an adult man. Manhood is responsibility. I've heard it. there was a podcast I was listening to this morning Uh, with John Tyson. He's a pastor in New York City. And he has said, manhood is the joyful acceptance of responsibility. I was like, man, I really like that. I'm going to keep my definition of just manhood is responsibility. But man, I wish I would have said is joyful, the acceptance of joyful responsibility. But manhood is responsibility. And when men refuse to take responsibility, the world falters. The world goes dead. Hell in a handbasket, if you want to say it that way. And so I was looking up some articles because they're over and over again. This has been happening, especially for the last several generations. So they're from basically from the post-war period, post-World War II period, all the way through to today. We've seen a decline in um, male, male participation in the workforce, male college participation. We've seen what has been called the vanishing American adult by... A guy named Ben Sasse, he was a senator for the United States out of Nebraska, I believe. He wrote a book several years ago called The Vanishing American Adult. And I found an article written by a guy named Dr. William Mace about this book. It's kind of a review of the book. So I haven't actually read the book, but I read the article about the book. So it's kind of the same. And this is what the the guy said. And I want you to remember, in the context of Fast Car, when it was written, 1988. So what is that? That is uh, 23 years after 1965 when the post-World War II period is, starts to get measured because that's when the, peop- you know, they, um, pe- the people come back from World War II. They have a bunch of babies. You get the baby boomers. Baby boomers are teenagers in the 1960s. and It's that generation that, where they start measuring the post-World War II period all up until today. To the end of the baby boomer, baby end of the baby boomers, you know the baby boomers who gave us the sexual revolution. And okay, I want you to think about the context of that song. So it's written 23 years after the the uh, post World War II period, where people start to become perpetual adolescents, and this song is right in the middle of that. So this is a woman who has experienced what. The fruit of the 1960s and the 1970s did to men. And what it did is it emasculated them greatly and it it caused them to stop taking responsibility for themselves. And it just set up generations to fail. Generations. Because when men don't do what men are supposed to do, the world falters, especially their children. It just it generationally compounds. In beginning in post-World War II period, when men were captivated by sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the sexual revolution was happening, and feminism pushed men to the side, because men, they just let it happen, because they were pursuing sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the women were like, well, we'll just step up. And there were some other factors, I understand that very much, I know there were political factors, I know that there were economic factors, I understand all that, but to keep it very simple... whatever happened in the 1960s in the post-World War II period caused men to stop taking responsibility to live as perpetual adolescents and we are feeling the fruit of that today where now it's on average I think 45% of all kids grow up without a father and you hand down generationally what happens. So here's here's this uh, article from the book uh, giving a review of the vanishing American adult. Here's a quote from it. We are living in an increasingly adult adolescent society where adolescents are setting the trends and the taste. Senator Ben Sasse in his new book, the vanishing American adult believes that teenage culture has become the model for American life. It began following world war II with our sudden abundant wealth and celebrity driven pop culture with its consumerism, its secularism, hypersexuality and the shirking of responsibilities. Remember that phrase shirking of responsibilities. Here's some things that have happened. Childhood obesity skyrocketed 500% from one in 20 teens in the early 1960s to more than one in five today. It is estimated that young males have played more than 14,000 hours of video games by the time they've reached 21. 14,000 hours. Let me do some quick math because you work, if you work full time, you work 2,080 hours a year. That's if you work 40 hours. That's almost seven years working years that they have played spent playing video games 14,000 hours that is a that's seven working years that you've spent playing video games and fully one quarter of Americans between ages 25 and 29 now live with a parent compared to only 18% over a decade ago okay before we you know we all feel bad for when we lived with our parents or if you still live with your parents the housing prices have Gone. So in 1960, the average house price was two times your annual income. Now it's like 10 times your annual income. You There's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> there's no level of responsibility that's going to keep up with that level of growth in housing prices and when, especially when wages have been relatively stagnant for that entire period of time. So you're, we're kind of off the hook there, but the, there are still the people who are playing video games 14,000 hours who are living in mom and dad's basement, not in... Doing their work. Okay. Uh, But going back to the quote before 1980 kids rarely were diagnosed with ADHD OCD depression and other mental disorders. That's just a that's a fact. You can just look it up. That is a the the frequent diagnosis of ADHD OCD depression and other mental disorders skyrocketed post 1980. You just look it up. Sassy says parents are largely to blame for churning out indifferent distracted passive, dependent young adults by overmanaging their lives, and he believes young adults are capable of making decisions and acting independently but recognizes that few of them do. Yet the responsibility falls back on parents since they failed to help their children learn to overcome peer pressure, work hard, resist consumption, distinguish between needs and wants, and become fully literate in the classics. I love that he just throws that one in there. <laughs> you distinguish between needs and wants, work really hard and then read good books. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about reading good books. I just think that's a funny thing to add in there. But listen to this, I want to read that paragraph again. Ben Sassi in his book says that parents are largely to blame for churning out indifferent, distracted, passive, dependent young adults by overmanaging their lives, and he believes young adults are capable of making decisions and acting independently but recognizes that few of them do. Yet the responsibility falls back on parents since they failed to help their children learn to overcome peer pressure, work hard, resist consumption, distinguish between needs and wants, and become fully literate in the classics. This is, still, this is very prevalent today when we have things like smartphones all over. And that's a whole different topic for another time. I'm sure you're very aware of it. <clears throat> but... We currently live in a society where where perpetual adolescence has become the norm. And when you a song like Fast Car is a, about a man who is well, it's about a woman who marries a man who is a perpetual adolescent and it destroys her life. It destroys her life. She takes on all the responsibility that she possibly can. And because she married a perpetual adolescent, it destroys her life and her children's life. That's what happens when men fail to grow up. When men for t- refuse to take on responsibility, when we f- refuse to do hard things, when we put for- refuse to put down our video game controllers or our YouTube or whatever, and we do- and we stop taking on responsibility, when we consume, when we participate in hypersexuality, when we shirk our responsibilities, the world falters and women and children pay the price and we cannot continue to pay the price. Here's another book. I haven't read this book, but it's been in my Amazon cart for years. It's called Men Without Work, and this was a study done, a study in a book written about the declining male workforce in the United States, and and again, he goes to that post-World War II period, and he points to that what happened in that post-World War II period as the initial cause for pushing men towards shirking responsibility. Over the, here's a quote. Over the past two generations, America has suffered a quiet catastrophe that catastrophe is the collapse of work for men not for women it's a collapse of work for men in the half century between 1965 and 2015 work rates for the american male spiraled spiraled relentlessly downward and an ominous ominous migration commenced a flight from work in which an ever-growing numbers of working-age men exited the labor force altogether. So from 1965 to 2015, American male workforce spiraled. It plummeted downward to the where there's men just not even trying to look for work anymore. They are the man in fast car. Maybe they're delivering food for Uber Eats or DoorDash, but they're not actually doing anything to contribute to society, to take care of their family, to give themselves some meaning, and and now they're suffering from crazy mental disorders, high levels of stress, and who knows what else because they refuse to take on responsibility. So what are we supposed to do? They've become the guy in Fast Car, and I don't think it's any shock that this woman, Tracy Chapman, wrote this song in 1988, 23 years after the beginning of this period where where men began to refuse to grow up they just refused to grow up and here's a song that lets us know and then that what happens to women and children when men refuse to grow up and now you just amplify that forward another 20 30 years to where we are today and it's not any better not better at all it's worse and we have a responsibility to do it so what are we supposed to do What do we do as men in a culture like we're in? Because, I mean, you could read the stats and you could point like, well, it's like I can point to this economic factor, this political factor. Everybody, you know, women hate us. The media hates us. Everybody hates us. They hate us. They hate us because we're men. They hate us because we're white men. They hate us because we're black men. They hate us because we're Hispanic. They just hate us because we're men. What are we to do? Okay, number one thing you have to do is you have to refuse to be a victim. Like You need to make up your mind right now that you are not a victim to your circumstances. You're not a victim to the culture. You are not a victim to your upbringing. You have to make up your mind that you are not a victim. You have to refuse to be a victim. Hard things have happened in your life, I'm sure. There are circumstances that were unfair. There are things that are against you. Yes, but you, know, you can either be a man and rise up to the challenge or you can be a perpetual adolescent who says... Everything's too hard. I'm going to sit here with my video games. That's—I mean—you can make that choice if you want. But playing the victim card is not going to help you. And it, it's no one's coming to rescue you. There is no superhero coming to rescue you to make things better. You can vote for Donald Trump all you want. You're—you're you're not going to get the superhero that's going to come and rescue you. You have to take responsibility as an individual male for your life and for the people around you because that's what manhood is. Manhood is taking responsibility for yourself and for those around you. So number one, you have to refuse to be a victim because you'll never take responsibility if you're a victim. Like make up your mind right now. And then you need to practice doing hard things. You need to give yourself over to the hardest things possible. Do hard things. I have been saying this since high school. It is good for the for a man to do hard things. And I probably learned it from my father, if not from my football coach or somebody. You need to do hard things. Pick one thing today that is unbelievably difficult for you to do and do that thing. Just whatever it is. For you, if you have a hard time getting out of bed, make up your mind that you're going to get out of bed at 5 a.m. no matter what. Not because there's anything special about waking up at 5 well, I think there is, but because it's the hardest thing for you to do. If it's the hardest thing in the world for you to do to put down your, your video game controller, just get rid of it. If it's hard if it's hard for you to exercise, go exercise. If it's hard for you to read a book, put everything you can into reading a book. If you, if you have a hard time putting down your beer bottles, put down your beer bottles. Do the hardest thing possible, and then over time, continue to give yourself over to hard things. I'm starting to think that men will only rise to the level of difficulty around them. I think as long as there's like a life jacket on them, they will never, they'll, sw- they'll be swimming in the deep end, but with a life jacket. If there's something that's upholding them that where it lowers their need to take responsibility, they're going to rise only to the level that they need to and not go anymore. And so what I'm starting to think is men almost need to put themselves in situations Where there's no life jacket, where you burn the boats, there's no turning back. You have to rise to the challenge in front of you. I think we intentionally need to put challenges in front of ourselves that force us to rise to it instead of looking for safe harbor. Maybe, maybe, this is not advice, this is just a maybe. And if you have kids, don't do this. Maybe you're living with your parents. Maybe you need to. Move out of your parents' house and spend 60% of your income on rent just so that it will force you to work more than 25 hours a week. Because you can work 25 hours a week, 32 hours a week, and live at your parents and pay them 300 bucks. and But you'll never, you'll never rise to the challenge and find a way to make more income because you're too comfortable. You're too comfortable. So you need to do hard things. And then the other thing, you need to take on more responsibility than you have right now. And I was just talking about work. I think every man should work at least 50 hours a week if you're single. Minimum. If you're single, you should work at least 50 hours per week. Not necessarily just at your job. I'm not saying you need to be at your job 50 hours per week because there's a difference between your job and work. There's this TikTok trend or Instagram Reels trend right now called house husbands or stay-at-home husbands. And guys, just their wife goes and works or their girlfriend goes and works, and they just stay at home and Dude, they don't. They aren't even taking care of kids. They're just at home, and it's like, wow, you couldn't be lazier. You need to go work minimum fifty hours per week. You can do that by going to your job, volunteering at your church, volunteering somewhere else, doing, starting a side hustle, getting some extra education. You need to make good use of your time while you're single, even even if you're married make good use of your time putting in at least 50 hours a week. Last week I started I've downloaded this app to track how many hours am I putting towards work throughout the week and how many time, how many hours am I putting to leisure and that's just wh- how I distinguish. It's either work or leisure. Uh, I didn't include my f- family responsibilities so if I'm spending time with my family, you know I'm not really counting that. Last week I put in, About 65 hours worth of work time between running this podcast, doing my other job, and then some continuing learning. I'm trying to make sure that I'm doing the hardest thing possible because I don't want to be wasting my time on video games and other leisurely activities that produce nothing and make me soft. Because (laughs) what's at stake? My family is at stake. If I don't do what men have to do, uh, my family is at stake. So what did you take on more responsibility work at least 50 hours a week if you're single Plus you're gonna if you want to especially if you work more at your job, you're gonna get paid more later You'll get paid substantially more later if you put in more work now volunteer at your church or your parish Do something that you don't get paid for make a list of everything you need to do Everything that your wife has asked you to do and just do it Just make a list and do it do all of it in as fast as possible that's how you're going to take on more responsibility cuz we have to cuz i don't want to be like the guy in the song fast car i don't want my wife eventually saying take your fast car and keep on driving and now it's time for the comment section of the podcast this is a brand new section to the podcast if you've been a faithful listener over the last 2 years you know that I recently decided to start posting my episodes on YouTube. One of the reasons I was so hesitant to post on YouTube was because I didn't want to deal with the dreaded comment section where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. People just say the meanest things in the world on the YouTube comment section. Weeping and gnashing of teeth for sure. So I released a short last week because I put up the podcast on YouTube in shorter form and then I, have, I cut it up and then release it as shorts to get more views. And I released a short last week that had the word socialist in the title, and it received zero views in three hours. Zero in three hours. So I went in and I changed the title of it from uh, Socialism is Stealing to Stealing is Wrong. That was the title, Socialism is Stealing, and I changed the title of it to Stealing is Wrong. And then within six hours of changing the title, it had 2,000 views. So nicely done, YouTube, but... All, the video was all of fifteen seconds long, and because I said socialism is stealing, out came the comments. Take a listen to the video. And bef- well, let me say this before I continue to all my socialist friends who thinks what I'm saying is we need to take wealthy people's money and distribute it to the poor. That is not at all what I'm saying. Or distribute it to you because you want other people. You want to live off what other people make. That is not what I'm saying at all. Wealth distribution is a form of stealing, and stealing is wrong. It's against the Ten Commandments. That was it. That was the video. They didn't, that was cut from a much longer podcast. The comments on the video was the inspiration for this segment of the podcast. I'd also like to thank Brett Cooper, whose show I've never watched. I did watch one this last weekend for the first time about men thinking about the Roman Empire, which was hilarious. And the only reason I'm giving her credit is because I told a few people about this segment of the podcast and every single time they responded, Oh, like Brett Cooper. So yes, like Brett Cooper, but nowhere near as clever as her. So without further ado, here's our top three comments from my 15 second socialism is stealing video. Comment number one, funny how underpaying people for their labor isn't stealing, huh? Four of the comments, by the way, started with the word funny, and all of them started with funny how, which I think is the way people are trying to be condescending. So nice try being condescending. You think you said something clever, but you didn't actually say anything clever. Not being paid well sucks. Now, you know, they're saying funny how underpaying people for their labor isn't stealing. Being underpaid sucks, but it's not stealing. I made $28,000 a year for much of my 20s. Like, you, very few people can say you made less money than me. Like, you just, I made $28,000 for most of my 20s. The first cure to being underpaid is to take responsibility and to gain some skills that actually improve the company you work for. Like if you wanna get paid more, do something to make the company make more money. That's why they pay you anyways, so that the company makes more money. If the company doesn't make more money, but they pay you more money, you'll get be getting fired soon because they'll be out of money. That's how businesses work. I know, not being paid well, sucks. You can't have your shoe game. You can't haul up all your accessories. You can't make your $450 car payment. I know it sucks. It sucks. You have to live kind of poor. You have to live cheap. It sucks. The only thing that you can do is to take responsibility, gain some skills, and actually improve the company you work for. And I'm willing and I, I, I'm I, I know that you signed up for that company or for that job willingly at that pay. That's why you have that job. You went through an interview. They said, this is what we're going to pay you. And you willingly said, willingly said yes, you can't throw a fit now for not being paid what you want to pay. When I took that job that paid $28,000, I knew what I was signing up for because <laughs> like, I signed the paper. Also, if you want to know something about how businesses work, you should take a class on accounting or taxes that will help you understand why pay is the way that it is. Money doesn't just come out of nowhere, no matter what Jerome Powell or Congress thinks. Money just doesn't come out of nowhere. Companies have to pay taxes for you. You as an individual have to pay 15.3% for your taxes, Medicare and Social Security. There's your socialism for you. You pay for that. The government pay you, pay for that 15.3%. Unless you're a W 2 employee, then the company pays half for you. So you've already, thank you, government. You only pay 7.5%, and the company pays the rest for you. Your taxes, your pay, taxes every check that you have, and then government forces the company to pay taxes for your benefit. So you're already saving 7% by working for this company. They're paying it for you. So if you want to figure out why am I paid so little, we'll just go ahead and add 7.5% back to your ta- to your income and that's what you're actually paid. <laughs> Part of the reason you're paid so little is because the government, which has become very socialist in its leaning, we still live in a free market economy, praise God. It's taking money from the company that pays you. So if, if you want if you want the company to pay you more, well, vote for people who will lower that corporate tax rate or your Medicare tax rate or Social Security, anything that'll get more money in your pocket, um, or um, you get those skills that pay for you. Um, you also need to produce so that the company can pay you. If you just sit there watching my YouTube shorts in the middle of a work day, <laughs> you're not improving your odds of getting paid more. Very few p- people are paid well in their 20s. That's just a fact. You're a high risk. You don't have very many skills, you're brand new to the workforce, very few people are paid well in their 20s. You can change that. You can take responsibility for yourself and you can do something to ensure that you're paid more in the future. And I said this up top, in your 20s, especially while you're single, work at minimum 50 hours per week, gain some get some work experience, get some skills, plus some diligence. That's how you're going to become wealthy, that's how you're going to get paid more. Work hard. If you don't do any of what I just said above. You will remain underpaid the rest of your life because you never took responsibility for yourself, but you wanted a handout, and in your 50s, you will be mad at companies for not paying you more when you did nothing to help the company make more money. Be thankful that you have a job. Take some responsibility and make the company better. You're, you're never going to get anywhere in life, no matter the system, no matter if it's free market, no matter if it's capitalism, no matter if it's socialism, if you don't take responsibility. It's like the secret to life. Comment number two: Jesus was a socialist. This one was my favorite because so little thought was actually given to this comment. And it actually shows how little you know about the basics of socialism. Socialism is rooted in materialism, which is a rejection of the reality of God. That is just that is a fact. To be a socialism is rooted in the philosophy of materialism, and materialism rejects. God it rejects that there is a reality of God all that there is is what can be touched and felt So to be a socialist you must believe that all that exists is the material and the state as the sole arbiter of good You can't there is no God Jesus is God Jesus claimed to be God and to claim that Jesus was a socialist is to claim that he rejected himself So nice try Jesus was not a socialist Jesus wasn't a capitalist either at all, Neither the capitalist nor the socialist can claim that Jesus shares his worldview, which is one of the things that irritates me so much about our modern day. Instead of letting Jesus and, and the gospel confront our worldview so that we can conform our lives to his, we just take whatever we already believe. We slap Jesus's name on it and call it and be like, oh, Jesus was a socialist. Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jesus also wasn't a capitalist. <laughs> not his area of expertise or his mission. Well, probably his area of expertise. He is God after all. If they would have listened to the rest of the podcast, they would have known that I talked about the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus warned against the deceitfulness of riches, which is what the whole podcast was about. Ayn Rand, the ultimate capitalist. You know, a lot of people love her book, what is it, Atlas Shrugged. They love the idea of Ayn Rand and what she she proposed. But she's just like Marx, the ultimate socialist, because both believed in utopia and heaven on earth could be brought about economically. Both hated God. Both wanted to do whatever they could do. And both were wrong. Ayn Rand thought utopia would become about if we would just have pure capitalism all all over. And Marx thought if we had a socialist state leading to a communist state, utopia would happen. Both of them rejected God both of them hated god and both were dead wrong so <laughs> if you uh still are not convinced by that i recommend you read the book devils by dostoevsky or the gulag archipelago because if you want to see where social what social what socialism does to individuals and to nations you need to go there it's the, that is the first the first thing to go in socialism is religion every single time and that is detailed in dostoevsky's book devils and in the gulag archipelago And for our third comment, funny how being greedy is also a sin, but capitalism rewards the greedy. This comment got 12 thumbs up by itself. Um, I actually like this comment, um, but it does fall into logical error. I do like this comment because yes, greed is a sin and greed is a very grievous sin. It's avarice is one of the seven deadly sins. It's absolutely deadly greedy people though what you need to understand about greedy people is greedy people will find a way no matter what the economic system is to take advantage of others and to exploit them they really you want to know where the greediest people work government (laughs) they're all senators they're all representatives the greediest people in the world work in government and then probably in investment banks but Greed, greed is still in the heart of every man, and that's what the whole podcast was about. I told a parable, or I didn't tell a parable, I, to, I shared one of Jesus' parables where a guy comes up and says, Let the, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. He, so there's a brother that's greedy and there's a brother that's coveting. You're not going to escape sin no matter the economic system. The solution to greed is not socialism. Because monarchy promotes greed, capitalism promotes greed, socialism promotes greed. Not, no, that's not the right way. It doesn't promote greed. Greed takes advantage of whatever system is in place for its own benefit, no matter what. There, not a lot of uh, you know capitalism as we understand it, or definitely not corporatism that is plaguing American society today. Not a lot of corporatism in the Bible, and yet there were still. Greedy people. The solution to greed is not socialism because one greedy people just go into the government as overseers, like I said, and because it's based on covetousness. Socialism is based on covetousness. It is. They have what I need. Take from them. Give to me. They want to be Robin Hood. Capitalism doesn't reward the greedy as much as greedy people use. Whatever means is at their disposal. And it's absolutely deadly. So, yes, greedy is a sin. Capitalism does not reward the greedy. The greedy take advantage of whatever is around them. One thing you should probably do is look into your heart and be like, "Hey, am I greedy? Am I at, do I suffer from the sin of avarice? Do I have covetousness in my heart that would make make me think it's okay to steal what other people's have for my own benefit?" You should like before you fix the world, clean up your room, check at your heart, make sure you're not suffering from those same systems. Free markets do remain the best op- option for economic security for all people because, and I say free markets on purpose, because free markets allow individuals to take responsibility for themselves and for others. Without free markets, you are asking someone else to take care of you. So do I think that there needs that the government needs to be a referee in some areas of the economy? Yep. Yes, I do. I'm very much like Theodore Roosevelt in that way. I don't think capitalism should touch our food. I was just having a conversation with my parents about it. There's some things that capitalism shouldn't touch. And, you know, that's just the opinion I have. I don't think it's necessarily fully right, but it's the opinion I have. The poor will always be among you. We have an obligation to take care of the poor at whatever capacity we can. And the best way to do that is through free markets. Today's gospel comes from Matthew chapter 18. We are going to be talking about solving conflict. Okay, so this is a um, teaching from Jesus that comes in the midst of a much longer teaching. So I'm kind of just pulling it out of its context a little bit because at the beginning of Matthew chapter 18, Um, the disciples want to know who is the greatest. And Jesus talks about becoming like a child and sin that is to come and woe to the one whose sin comes. But then when sin does come, he's going to now talk about forgiveness because it takes a great deal of humility to forgive another person. It takes humility to solve conflict. In our pride, we do not solve conflict. We would much rather be angry and right in our own mind than address a conflict. Addressing a conflict is really difficult. It's uncomfortable. It takes humility to be like, I'm going to approach this person who wronged me or who I wronged. I'm going to approach them and we're going to work this out. And Jesus gives instructions in this teaching on what to do when your brother sins against you. Now, one thing that has to be said in the modern world, he uses the word sin intentionally. It's very intentional. It does not mean if someone has a different opinion than you. It means that, not at all, if someone has a different opinion than you and you get into an argument and it gets tense, they did not sin against you and they did not cause, they did not attack your personal self or whatever. They're You're debating ideas. They're not attacking you. A sin is when someone does something wrong against you. This is also, before we get into what to do, this is not a suggestion from Jesus. This is not a Hey, I would probably do it this way. This is a command. This is what Jesus expects of men when they are in conflict, of men and women, too. Women tend, I think, they they might be better at addressing conflict after they've gossiped about it, probably. But uh, men, will just sit there in our pride and be angry and not talk to each other, or we'll get into a fistfight. We skip all the other steps. This is not a suggestion. We men need to do exactly what Jesus said here. We need to humble ourselves and go and talk to our brothers who we have sinned against or have sinned against us. When we like, we need to become assertive in handling our conflicts. Passive men are dangerous men and they allow small things to become big things. Every seed of anger that comes from when someone sins against you, turns into turns into a root that turns into a tree. Small things become big things very, very quickly, and big things destroy families and societies. Like, they just do. Mass shooters didn't wake. We're not joyful on Tuesday, and on, by Friday decided it's time to you know pull out a gun and shoot people. Small things become big things very, very quickly, and it destroys families and societies that little problem that you refuse to confront whether it's with your spouse with a friend with a coworker with your boss the problem you refuse to confront and then to forgive will become a big thing so what are you supposed to do if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone nobody else no gossiping no telling the telling your boss about your coworker no telling you and him alone you don't invite a third party into Into this situation, if he has sinned against you, or you have sinned against him, and there's conflict in it because of this, well, there's definitely conflict. You need to go to them alone. You need to state explicitly what has happened. You need to reconcile, and you need to forgive. That will take care of probably ninety percent of all your problems, all your conflict, like right there. If it's the refusal to talk about it where things get bad, if you just talk about it, I guarantee you'll. I'm almost certain you will walk away. With a hug from your brother. Unless you did something that's really, really detrimental. But don't do that. Okay, verse 16, he says, but if he does not listen. So there are times when you will go to your brother who has sinned against you or you have sinned against. And they refuse to listen. They refuse to repent. They refuse to reconcile. They refuse to forgive. You don't give up. What you do is you bring in a, somebody else so that every charge can be established by two or three witnesses. What does that mean? It means that way no, the, who, the two people in conflict... Nothing turns into a gossip mill. Nothing turns into a he said, she said, or he said, he said. You have somebody who is a mediator who sees what you two don't see and can help you work it out. Also, it's a good theological principle to establish your theology by a minimum of two or three witnesses. If you have one verse for your entire theology on something like baptism or salvation and you don't have two or three explicit verses, your theology is weak. So just throwing that in there. Okay. So bring a, bring a brother or sister, bring a mediator in. Don't bring a mediator in until you have gone and talked to them yourself. And then finally tell it to the church. What does this mean? Okay. Well, a lot of this is going to depend on what you think about church authority. (laughs) Um, I think this really means bring it to a pastor. I don't know if it necessarily means stand up in front of the congregation and tell everybody what has happened. (laughs) Um, maybe that's what it means. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means bring it to a pastor who has spiritual authority and pastors have spiritual authority. Your priest has spiritual authority. Your bishop has spiritual authority, whatever denomination you're in. If he refuses to listen to the church, and this is something that you and I need to get into our head. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Cause Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. He died for Gentiles and tax collectors. In the context of this, what I think it means is man, you're no longer acting like you're part of the family. And you do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you hand you you kind of you excommunicate him for a period. Not out of revenge, not out of malice, in order that they might repent. There's something about the absence of another person that causes people to repent and to change their attitude towards another it's a conse- it's the consequence of consequences a person who refuses to apologize who refuses to repent who refuses to reconcile who refuses to forgive w- they're assuming that the relationship will at least still be there and when you break the relationship it changes things and the, it gives them time to repent a great example of this paul the great apostle actually had a conflict with a guy named john mark and it took about 40 years long time for them to reconcile like they separated at one point and and Paul was angry with John Mark for abandoning him and it wasn't until later when I think when Paul was in prison that they were able to reconcile now they didn't have cell phones they didn't they weren't able to do you know as quickly as we can <clears throat> but eventually handing people over to like, like separating so that they will repent is eventually good if you've gone through the first three steps, if you've talked to them one-on-one, if you've gotten a mediator, and if you have gotten pastoral counsel to come in, that's when you get, you don't get to cut people off just to cut people off. That is wrong. All of Second Corinthians is about what happens after you've excommunicated somebody, how to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Well, not all of Second Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians through, I think, chapter Six. You can you can really tell. It's really about reconciliation. Um, so today's gospel. You need to fix conflicts. You need to make sure you're doing what is required. What this is. Remember, this is not a suggestion. This is a command of Jesus that you reconcile with your brother. Because little things become big things very quickly, and big things destroy families and societies. So we must root that out of ourselves that's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. If you want to dive deeper with us at the Institute of Men, become a subscriber on Substack. Substack is the hub that delivers all the content out to everywhere else. And on Substack, if you're a paid subscriber, you get exclusive content throughout the week. If you didn't like this content, if you didn't like this episode, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. Tune in Wednesday for our Wisdom Wednesday. And until next time, I am Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.